Uh, we're going to be in the book of Ephesians for a little while, not nearly as long as we were in the book of John. Um, it's only six chapters compared to 21 in John, so you know that makes a big difference. We're going to go through it basically the same way that we did with John. We'll, we'll take the, uh, the obvious passages that seem to be uh, given to us in the way that it's laid out, the way that it's presented by Paul. But just as a quick overview um, about the, the book before we dig into chapter 1, um, who was Ephesians written to? What? The Ephesians. Good job. That's a, that was a softball, right? Okay, the Ephesians, the church or the churches of Ephesus, right? That was, Paul was writing to them. And I think it was interesting, I went back and I kind of read through the history uh, of Paul in Ephesus, and you can find that, if I remember correctly, in Acts 19, uh, if you want to read through that and see. It's kind of funny how it, how it worked out. Paul uh, actually just kind of stopped over in Ephesus originally, and he preached in the synagogue, and then he went on to another place. And he had come there with Aquila and Priscilla, and, uh, and so they stayed and, and were preaching and teaching. And another man by the name of Apollos comes in. Anybody know Apollos? Sound familiar? You know, yeah, he was in Corinth for a while too. All right, man named Apollos comes in. Well, Apollos hadn't really heard everything about Christ. He had heard John the Baptist's information, uh, uh, a call to repentance. And so Apollos was there and he was in Ephesus and he was preaching repentance based on what John the Baptist was saying. And so Aquila and Priscilla took him aside and said, hey, have you... Have you heard about Jesus and, and what he's done? And he's like, no. And so they, they brought him along and he accepted Christ, obviously, and became a very strong, firm believer. He was a man who, who knew the scriptures well. And, uh, and so Paul comes back to Ephesus and he sees all these people who are talking about, you know, following, you know, the way. And he asks them, well, well, well who were you, you know, who were you baptized in? Because that was how they knew you know, what, the, what they were following, was based, there was that baptism. Who was you baptizing? They said, we were in the, baptized in the baptism of John the Baptist. And so Paul spends three months in the synagogue teaching and preaching, and it's interesting, it says that, uh, that those that were saved originally were 12 men, just a small group right there in, in Ephesus. But Paul began preaching and teaching for about three months in the synagogues until there was an uprising uh, as there tended to be when Paul preached. And then he moved to uh, kind of an, uh, an amphitheater type area. I forget the name of it and I didn't write it down. I apologize. Um, but it's in Acts <laughs> if you want to see it. Uh, so he moved to an amphitheater and he was there for another two years. So Paul spent a very lengthy amount of time in Ephesus with these people. So these people were, were very near and dear to Paul's heart, as were many <laughs> who, who he reached. But this was kind of a key spot for Paul because Ephesus was sort of a gateway to Asia. And Paul was able to reach out to many people in Asia. In fact, it says that through this, the, the continent of Asia was reached by Paul. And so Paul was able, even, even for two years there in Ephesus, to reach people who were passing through and going back and forth into Asia and then spreading the gospel. So it was a very productive and fruitful time for Paul here in Ephesus. And of course, Paul goes, uh, goes on to you know, more places that he was visiting. Near the end of his life, he's coming back um, right before his, his uh, um, going to Rome. <laughs> he's in Jerusalem first. But he's on his way there and he stops in Miletus and he calls for the elders 
of the church of Ephesus. And you'll find that in Acts chapter 20. And he says, gives them, he gives them encouragement. And then he gives them warning about false prophets. And, he, and he's, he's taking the time, even while he's really hurriedly trying to get to where God wants him to be, he's taking the time to meet with the leaders of this church. And then here he is, and we, the best we can tell is about 62 AD when he writes Ephesians to the churches in Ephesus. And he writes really what seems to be one of the few completely positive letters. You know, if you look at a lot of the letters that Paul writes to churches, there seems to be a good bit of negativity, a good bit of problems, things that he has to correct. Um, Ephesians doesn't really have much, if any, of that. It's a very positive, it's a very encouraging letter to this church. And, uh, and I think that's one of the big things that I want to take away from it this morning is Ephesians is a great book and we're going to learn a lot of things. And you know what? There's going to be things that, that just for sake of time, we won't be able to cover. There's going to be, uh, there's going to be some, some, you know, crazy um, sentences, especially in this first section. Um, if you've read through Ephesians chapter one, you're going to know we're going to read a lot of long sentences and, and we're not going to try to diagram them for you, but <laughs> it, it would be a chore. Um, and so, but I want you to, as we go through this, and as we're teaching and preaching, don't just ignore things that maybe we don't cover. If there's something that you see there that sparks a question in your mind, don't ignore that. Study it out. Talk to one of the elders. Talk to another person in the, in the church who, who is a, a spiritually adept, who you feel would be able to help you walk through it. Because there are some things in Paul's writings that are hard to understand. In fact, Peter says that. <laughs> he says that Paul's writings, um, you know, sometimes they're hard to understand. And, and if we don't take the time to understand them, then Peter says that those who are weak twist it and use it for um, wrong, false doctrine. So I encourage you, don't just skip over things. Learn, grow, dig into the book of Ephesians. Don't just wait for Sunday for us to spoon feed everything to you, all right? Dig into it, understand it, learn, grow. Let's start off with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this book. We thank you for Paul. Though he was not perfect, he was a man that was greatly used by you to save many. He was used by you to pen much of the New Testament. And Lord, I pray that as we look at his words this morning, you would encourage our hearts. They would remind us of what you've done for us, that we would be uh, not forgetful hearers, as James says, but that we would um, put into action what we see this morning. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1, if you're not already there. <clears throat> We're going to read down through verse 14. Now, stay with me, especially kids. This is going to be rough, okay? There's a lot of long sentences Okay, but stay with us. Here we go. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not too bad, right? It's pretty typical for, for Paul how he introduces his letters. All right, here we go. <clears throat> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him also, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. All right, deep breath. Um, there's a lot of words there, <laughs> not a lot of periods. And if you're not careful, you can just kind of glaze over this passage. You know, there's a lot of, you know, praise to God for this thing that he did and it's wonderful and all right, okay, let's move on. Let's get to the meat of the passage, right? It, could be, it can be easy to jump over these things and, and miss what God has for us here even in these first 14 verses. And we're going to, of course, spend most of our time in verses 3 through 14, um, as that's where uh, the meat of this section is. <laughs> not, that, uh, not that Paul uh, sending grace and peace to the church is insignificant. I think it's very significant. It's something that he did often. It's a focus that he had was the grace of God and the peace that comes with it. And he encouraged the churches and he prayed for the churches, not just that they would have grace and peace, but that they would grow in their grace and grow in their knowledge of Christ. And we're going to see that even in Ephesians. Ephesians has several different themes that it talks about. Uh, we're going to start off this morning talking about uh, the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. We're going to talk about, um, in Ephesians, we're going to talk about the uh, salvation, everything that's involved in salvation, and how grace, again, is, is central to salvation. We're going to talk about how we are to be unified as the body of Christ. We're going to talk about how we're to act towards one another in the body of Christ. How we're supposed to grow up together in love in the body of Christ. It also talks about some uh, very real day-to-day -day issues. Family life. Work life. Um, and then it ends, of course, in, in the great chapter for parents, chapter 6, with children obey your parents. You know, we're going we're gonna to really harp on that one when we get there. All right. But, uh, but he goes into, after that, he goes into what? Spiritual warfare. The reminder that we are in a spiritual war. We are in a battle. And he calls us to preparation. He calls us to be ready to fight, to be ready for the battle that is coming. And so this morning, we're going to begin with chapter one. We're going to begin looking at these blessings that God has given us. Um, as I went through, as I was reading through this over and over and over again, I, I just kept noticing different things popping out. I don't know if, as we read it, uh, if you noticed certain things popping out several times or more often, and, and, and I noticed, you know, different themes even, not, not even just individual phrases, but different themes kind of coming out. So we're going we're gonna to break it down a little bit this morning. We're not going to go uh, exactly verse by verse like we normally would, 
Um, we're going to take the chapter or the passage and we're going to kind of break it down into these little pieces. In fact, I even, uh, I even highlighted it. I don't know if you can, if you can see that. That's my kind of took to, you know, I, I don't like writing my Bible for some reason, but I'll, I'll highlight all over my computer. Not with a real highlighter, thank you. All right. So this, and as I was going through, I was just marking, I was just reading through and marking these things and seeing, and I realized this morning as I was reading through it again, I missed something. But uh, we'll see if I remember to stick it in now. <laughs> but um, there's lots of stuff here. There's lots of stuff here. If we are willing to pay attention and dig in and get it, and, and quite frankly, I'll be honest with you, in the time that we have and, and what we're going to go over is going to be somewhat high level. Um, in order to get through this passage and talk about all the things that Paul brings up, there's just so much. Uh, that's why I encourage you, take it home, read it, study it, learn, grow. Because this morning is going to be hopefully a blessing, but it will be more of an overview. So there are four groups of, of things that I see here in the book of Ephesians. First, we have the blessings. Paul talks about that. You probably have a heading in your Bible, right above this passage, that says something similar to spiritual blessings in Christ, right? How many of you have that? Yep, okay, it's pretty common. You know, that's for preachers to give us our sermon titles. So this term title is spiritual blessings in Christ, all right? So now you know half the sermon, very good. So he, he talks about several different blessings that we have that God has given us. But then he, ta- he also talks about when he gave them to us. And he also talks about how he gave them to us. And he also talks about why he gave them to us. And so I'm going to break this down into those four sections, those four types of information as we go through it this morning. So first of all, let's look at these blessings that God has given us. You know, as you think of blessings, what do we usually think of when we think of blessings that God gives us? That's Sunday morning. You can talk, I know. What do we usually think of? Name a blessing that we usually think of when we're, when we're praising God. Yes, sir. Children? Children? Yeah. That's my son, for those who don't know. Um, <laughs> yes, okay, we praise the Lord for children, right? What else do we praise the Lord for? Heaven. Salvation? Heaven. Heaven. Okay, you got the spiritual people in front. They've been reading already. All right. What else? Uh, somebody that's not my children. Anything? Health, yes, health, very good. What else? Your family. Your family, all right. We tend to focus on physical things, do we not? We tend to focus on health. We tend to focus on, you know, job issues. We tend to focus on family issues. We tend to focus on all these things that are, that are physical in nature. And I think a lot of times we forget about, maybe until we come in on Sunday morning and sing songs, we forget about everything that we have. That's a spiritual blessing. And so this morning, as we look at these spiritual blessings, a lot of these are things that, and probably most of them, all of them are things that you already know. We're not talking about anything new, but it's good for us to be reminded. And Paul is just reminding the Ephesians of these things that God has given us that are spiritual blessings. So let's look at them. What are these spiritual blessings that we've been given? Verse three tells us that God our Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What are they? The first one I see is in verse 4. It says that he's chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, somebody tell us, we're going to learn this in chapter 2, but what were we before? If he had to bless us with being holy and blameless, what were we before? Sinful, right? Dead, right? We were, we were his, we, we, were, we were something that he could not even look upon because of our state. We were wicked. We were rebellious. We were sinful. And yet the blessing that Paul brings up first is not, not that we've been redeemed, although that's in here. We're going to get to that. But I think it's interesting. The blessing that Paul brings up first is that we can stand before God righteous. We can stand before God righteous. He says holy and blameless before him. When's the last time you really thought about that? You think, oh yeah, I, I thank God for my salvation. But when's the last time you really thought about the fact that you can stand before God as if you've never sinned? You can stand before God with a robe of, robe of white as if, as if you've never done anything wrong, as if you were not a son of Adam, as if you didn't have a sin nature. You can stand before God, and when he looks at you, he sees holiness and blamelessness. Is that not a great gift? Is that not a blessing? I hope this morning as we look at these, that your mind will be refreshed and your soul will be refreshed. Don't just sit there and listen. Think about what God has given us. We are holy and blameless before God. This amazing blessing. Not only are we holy and blameless, but in verse 5 he says, In love he predestined us for what? For adoption to himself. For adoption to himself. Somebody tell me, is anybody here know anybody or is anybody here uh, adopted? Do we have anybody that's adopted? I don't think we do. Does anybody have a, have a family member that's adopted? Know somebody you met on Facebook that's adopted? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> all right. But you're all familiar with the concept of adoption, right? What happens with adoption? A family, a couple um, decide that they want to adopt and they go and they find a child that they believe the Lord, hopefully if they're a Christian family, they believe the Lord wants them to adopt and bring into their family. What, is that, what does that look like? How does that work? Does a kid just, uh, you know, automatically become part of the family? We choose you. Boom. Done. Is that how it works? No, there's a process. There's a lengthy process. In fact, um, depending on where you go, some, especially if you go out of, the, out of the country, there can be processes you don't even know about. Um, I was reading just this last week of a friend of ours who thought they were going to be able to adopt a child from Liberia, is that right? And uh, come to find out there's a problem that they didn't even know would be a problem, would be anything that they'd have to think about. And now they're literally coming back home without the child. Adoption's not necessarily an easy thing. <laughs> and we're going to look at it a little bit later, how, we, how we're adopted but what about that child? Have you ever met a child that's been adopted? How about uh, those of you who are on Facebook? Have you ever seen some of those adoption videos on Facebook? I mean, those will just rip your heart out, won't they? You know, they've got the kids sitting there, 
you know, maybe on the couch or at, the, at a table or something and the, and the parents or the, the soon-to-be parents are talking to them and they're, you know, they're, they're just having, usually having kind of a normal conversation. And then, and a lot of times they'll give them like this present, right? And this present, they'll open it up and it'll say something like their name with the last name of the family, you know, or something like that. And I'm almost getting ready to choke up right here just talking about it. I mean, it's a special thing, is it not? To see a family taking a child that is not theirs and give them love as if they are. That's what adoption is, isn't it? It's taking in a child that you have no reason to be a part of your family, making them a part of your family and giving them the same love that you would your natural born children. That's what God has done for us. He has taken children who we're not his children. In fact, remember we went through John and John, and, and John tells us that Jesus said to, to the Jews who would not believe, he said, you are of your father whom? The devil, right? You're of your father, the devil, and his, his will you will do, right? Because you won't believe in me. And because of that, you won't believe in me, right? He says, you are of the father, your father, the devil, and we were too. We were slaves to sin, bound by sin to serve the devil. And yet God in his grace and his mercy and his love, it says there at the beginning of verse five, actually right before it, because whoever numbered this was weird, but it says in love, right? In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself. He looked on us in our sinful state, in our wickedness as children of the devil and said, I choose you. I want you. And he adopted us who were not his natural children. He adopted us who literally were his enemies. And he brought us into his family through his love. And now we enjoy the love just like we were natural born children of God. Is that not amazing? <laughs> He has made us holy and blameless before him. He's adopted us as sons. And then in verse 6, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This is a common theme of Paul, not just in the book of Ephesians, but in the majority of his books, the theme of grace. And he says that grace is what he has blessed us with. And, and later on, he says in chapter seven, in verse seven, he says, in him we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he what? Which he lavished upon us. Think about that word. He lavished upon us. You, you, think, you think maybe you might spoil your children sometimes, those of you that are parents, especially the youngest one probably, right? You know, we tend to do that. Vivian gets a lot more leniency in our family than the others do and did. Um, we'll work on that, crack the whip a little bit more. But, uh, but we do, we, we want to dote on our children. We want to give them good things. Jesus said that. But, but how many of us really do things lavishly? I mean, I, I don't know, but I think most of us in here probably can't afford to do things lavishly for our children, right? Or for our spouse, you know, or whatever, whatever it is. Um, 
there's, think about that word. Lavish has this idea of excessive, of way more than is needed, right? It's just, it's lavish. And what does he say? We have the blessing of grace that he gives to us lavishly. Do we really think about that? Do we really rely on that? Do we go throughout our day living in the power of God's grace that he has given to us lavishly, over and abundantly what we need? Or do we live in our own will, in our own power, in our own strength? My personal definition of grace, um, I feel like I can pretty much back this up by Scripture, but uh, you know, I, I, I'm not a fan of the acronyms. I think they kind of cheapen it a little. But uh, my personal definition of grace is God's power to do what pleases Him. In salvation, it's God's power to believe. In daily living, it's God's power to obey. I, that's just what I, I feel like I see in Scripture. And, and if we look at that, God's power to do what pleases him is something he's blessed us with. It's something we can't do on our own. We have no ability in and of ourselves to please God. It is only by his grace that we can. Not only has he given us grace, but we kind of said this already as we read through uh, in verse 7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the richness of his grace. We have forgiveness, through, or we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses. I don't know about you, but every fourth Sunday when we come and we take the, the bread and drink the cup and we are reminded of what Christ has done for us on the cross, it's a very emotional time. It's a very powerful time as we take a few moments and think about the fact that God has redeemed us. He has bought us back from slavery to sin. He has paid the price that was necessary to buy us back so that we could be his adopted son, his adopted daughter. He has bought us back, but he didn't just buy us back. He forgave our sins. This wasn't just a, hey, you know, I'll take care of this, but, you know, we're not still, mm, we're not talking, right? That's not what it was. He says, he's redeemed us by his blood and forgiven our trespasses. What Christ did on the cross not only gave us freedom from sin, but it gave us forgiveness from God. There's two sides of that coin. It's redemption and forgiveness. How often do we really think about the forgiveness part? You know, we think about the redemption part and we're grateful for that and we praise the Lord for that and we sing about that. But how often do we really think about the fact that we have been forgiven? It is that forgiveness that allows us to then stand before God as holy and blameless because he's forgiven us, because he's chosen not to hold our sin to our account. Think about that. That's what forgiveness is. It's not forgetting, because God always knows. He always, he, he knows everything that's ever happened. But he chooses not to remember by, by saying that he chooses not to hold it to our account. He chooses not to say, you know what? I love you, but 15 years ago, you stole that candy bar. 
You know, that's not what God does. He forgives. He doesn't hold it to our account. Forgiveness from our sins, redemption through his blood. The one that I skipped as I was going through in verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will. Um, I didn't see this because I kind of lumped it in with a, a different part, but making known to us the mystery of his will. You're going to see this word mystery several times in the book of Ephesians. In fact, Paul uses the word mystery multiple times in his writings. Anybody know what he's talking about when he talks about the mystery, usually? Any ideas? Yeah, well, one of them is saving the Gentiles, yeah, but, but in the general sense, he uses it for salvation, period, right? The mystery of salvation, the mystery that God would even love us in our sinful state, the mystery that God would care enough about us to send Jesus Christ to come to earth, live a perfect life, die on the cross for our sins, raise again from the dead three days later, that God would go through all that, and we're going to see he went through a a little bit more than that in here in a minute, but that God would go through all of that. In Paul's mind, he calls that a mystery. And we look at Paul, and Paul's probably the smartest person that we know <laughs> that, uh, that dealt with uh, you know, salvation. He wrote a whole book in Romans about salvation, well, most of it. And, uh, and so we look at Paul, and Paul himself calls it a mystery, but he also tells us it's a mystery that God has made known to us. It's not a mystery to us because we have been aware, been made aware of Jesus Christ. We've been made aware of what he's done for us. And we've believed. And God has opened our eyes to believe. So he's given us this mystery. Next, it says in verse 11 that we, in him we have obtained an inheritance. We talked about this briefly in the book of John. What is the inheritance? Anybody remember? Excuse me. Nobody remembers? What's the inheritance that we have as followers of Christ? What? Eternal life, right? That is the inheritance that we have as adopted sons. We share somewhat in the eternality of God. We share in the opportunity to have perfect fellowship with God for all of eternity. Just think about that. How, when was the last time you know, somebody mentioned heaven as things that they praise God for? But really, when, when have you last thought about heaven? And how amazing, not just, how, you know, not just the streets of gold and the, and the different you know, stones and, and all that stuff and everything that we read in Revelation, not just that, but just the fact that you will be without this. That you will live forever and ever in a glorified body, no longer bothered by sin, no longer bothered by death, no longer bothered by sickness. It says that he will wipe away all tears from our eyes. Have you really stopped to think about that? That is the inheritance that God has given us as a blessing that Paul reminds us of. He says in verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. This might be stretching it a little bit, but I think it's valid. He says that we who were the first to hope, 
I feel like hope is a blessing that God gives us. We who have put our trust in Christ have a hope that no one else does. Why? Why do we have hope? Is it because we're just really smart? No. It's because what we're going to look at later. It's because of what Jesus has done. We have hope because we have a God who has reached down and adopted us as sons in his love, has given us an inheritance, has made us righteous. That's what God has done. And we can hope in that God. But he didn't just give us hope by itself. What's the last thing he says? In verse 13, he says, we were sealed in the promise, with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Think about that. When you think of the Holy Spirit, what do you usually think about? What's, what's the function that you usually think about when you think of the Holy Spirit? What does he do? Okay, comforting, right? We get that from the book of John. Calls him the comforter, right? What else? What? Conviction. Somebody read the sermon notes already. All right. Conviction, right? That's, that's the thing that I think of the most when I think of the Holy Spirit, which is really sad, but it <laughs> tells you a lot about my spiritual life. Um, I think about conviction. You know, to me, it seems like, you know, that's, that's the interaction I seem to have a lot with, with the Holy Spirit is Him convicting me of things that I, that I need to, to change or do right or, or stop doing because they're wrong, right? That, that's how I tend to think of the Holy Spirit. But yet Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit was not just given to us for conviction, not just given to us for comfort, not just given to us to expound the, the Holy Scriptures as we read them. He's given to us as what? A guarantee. A guarantee of what? Of the inheritance. Think about that. The Holy Spirit, who is living inside of you, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, is a guarantee of everything that God has promised will happen at the end of days. It's a guarantee of our relationship with God being fulfilled. It's a guarantee of our ability to live forever with Him in perfect fellowship. That's what the guarantee is. We don't hope aimlessly. We don't hope just on some nebulous idea of God. We hope because we have the Holy Spirit. He's the guarantee of what we have. Of course, Andy kind of brought this up already because he also read the notes. How? How do we get these things? How do we get these? Or, I'm sorry, wait, I'm jumping ahead. I'm jumping ahead, I'm sorry. When did we get these things? When did we get these things? Somebody want to venture a guess? Yeah, before the foundation of the world. Think about that. You know, usually we think about these blessings coming when we are saved, right? We think about these blessings coming when we've accepted Christ, specifically the Holy Spirit. We think about him coming and dwelling within us at the time of salvation. And, uh, and in fact, it's interesting, go back and, and read Acts chapter 9 of how that happened with uh, the church of Ephesus. But, or 19, I'm sorry, Acts 19. Um, but that's, that's typically what we think of as far as, you know, when we get these things. But what does this passage tell us? Let's take a look. Let's go back up. 
And look at verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world. What does that mean, the foundation of the world? Anybody? What? Before it existed? Yeah. Before creation. Right? That's the way we would typically say it. Before God even created the world, before God even made Adam out of the dust of the ground, he had a plan to redeem us. Did you ever think about that? Before he even made the first man, he had a plan to redeem mankind. That's a powerful God. That's an amazing God. To think that he would think about us, I think of Psalms chapter 8, verse 4, I believe, where it says, Psalmist is talking to God and he says, Oh God, our God, how majestic is your name? And, and I'm sorry, I think I'm doing the wrong verse. He's t- he says, um, what am I thinking of? What is man that thou art mindful of him? Right? Why would you even think about us? We are so lowly. We are so insignificant. Why would you even think about us? That's what the psalmist cries back to God. Because he knows that God does. He understands that God does love us. He does think about us. And in fact, he was thinking about us even for redemption. All those blessings that he gave to us, he was thinking about them. He was planning them before he ever spoke a word of creation. Isn't that amazing? That God would think about us before anything else was made. He had a plan before the foundation of the world. But it wasn't just that he had a plan. Verse 5, it says, He he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. That's an interesting phrase, according to the purpose of his will. In fact, we see that three different times in this passage. Jump down to verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to, the, according to his purpose. It kind of says it a little bit differently there, right? And then scroll back down to verse 11. He says, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I think this is a very, very key point. Don't miss this. God didn't just have a plan before the foundations of the world. He had a plan that was to be carried out according to his purpose and his will. This is very important. God is not a reactionary God. What do I mean by that? God did not plan all of these things to happen the way they did because of all the things that men would do. It says that he planned this according to his purpose and his will. He was in complete control of everything. That is the sovereign God that we serve. And that might be a hard pill to swallow. Three times he says it in this short passage, according to the purpose of his will or according to the counsel of his will. It is all done. The plan that he set forth was performed exactly as he wanted it to. 
but it wasn't just a plan that was performed the way that he wanted to. But I think it's interesting, he says in verse 10, that as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things in earth. It wasn't just a plan that God had that he was going to do it purposefully and it ended with Christ. Because, you know, a lot of times I think we kind of act like God's plan, in a sense, ended with Christ. It's like, okay, Jesus died, I believe in him, yay me. <laughs> and that's it, right? God has a bigger purpose. It's not, it's not all about you, right? It's not just about us and saving us. Yeah, that's a great thought that God thought about us even before the foundation of the world, that God planned a redemption process that will be carried out according to his purpose, according to his will, to bring us back. And not just us. What does it say? To unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things in earth. See, the process of redemption isn't done. Jesus died on the cross. And that's all we need as human beings to be redeemed. But scripture tells us that all creation groans for his appearing. There's going to be a day when God will one day unite heaven and earth under his complete rule and complete submission to him. No more chaos, no more sin, no more trouble. He will have, again, his perfect creation. And that is the fullness of time. One day, it will be completely finished when that happens. So when did we get these blessings? He gave them to us before he even spoke a word of creation. Isn't that amazing? That we would have these before we were ever even a twinkle in anyone's eye except his. How? How do we get these? Anybody want to venture a guess? It's been mentioned 10 times in this passage that I counted. I think I might have missed one as well as I was reading through it again. Over and over and over again, we sing a song about it. All these things have been granted to us. These blessings have been given to us, not because of anything that we have done, but because of Christ. In Christ, we have been blessed with all these things We've been chosen in Christ to be to stand holy and blameless in his righteousness. It's not our righteousness that God looks at and sees holy and blameless. It's not anything that we've done that we can put on that God looks at and sees, okay, yeah, now he's holy, now he's blameless. It is in Christ that we stand before God, holy and blameless, as he has given us his righteousness and he has taken from us our sin. We stand blameless and holy because of Christ. It is in Christ that we are adopted. Christ's sacrifice not only saved us, but it made us fellow heirs with him. You remember that? We are fellow heirs with Christ. We are, in a sense, his brothers. In fact, I think Hebrews says that he was the firstborn among many brethren. He 
has allowed us to be adopted to God. It's almost like Jesus is sort of our adoption agency. <laughs> you know, he's the one that worked everything else. He's the one that did everything that we couldn't do. Those children can't do anything to be adopted other than maybe say yes or no. <laughs> but they don't have any power to deal with the governments and the costs and all that thing. They don't have any say in being adopted. Most of them, I would assume, would love to be adopted. They'd love to be a part of a family, but they need somebody to come along and do that. We have these agencies that come along. I kind of see Jesus as the agency or the agent of adoption through Christ. We have redemption and forgiveness through Christ. This is the one that we probably think of the most. How do we have that? Through his shed blood. It tells us right there in the passage. It says that we have, uh, through the redemption, through his blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses. It is because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross that we are redeemed, that we are forgiven. It's not anything we could do. It's only through him. We have an inheritance in Christ. Christ not only redeemed us, but he gave us the free gift of eternal life. That's what he talked about over and over in the book of John, right? He said, he even told uh, the, the woman at the well, what did he say to her? Drink of the water I'll give you and you'll what? Never thirst again, right? Jesus was saying, I have come not that you, that you would have life and that you would have it abundantly. He's talking about not just the end, but even now. And, and he says in John 3.16, the very famous verse that we all know, for God's love the world, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but what? Have eternal life or everlasting life, depending on what you want to say. Jesus has come so that through him, we have this inheritance of eternal life. It is because of what he did that we have it. It is because of what he has done. Our hope and our future is not based on some nebulous idea. It's based on God who became man, who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross, who was raised again three days later. That's the power of the person that we worship. That's the power of the person that we hope in. We don't have to hope in anything false. Our hope is anchored in Christ. It's amazing. All right, so why did God do all this? Why would God take people who were his enemies, take people who were sinful, take people who didn't really want anything to do with him, why would he care about them enough before he even created the world to have a plan of redemption done exactly the way that he wanted to, to provide then for us all of these blessings that we have in Christ through his perfect son? Why would he do all that? There's one phrase that keeps popping up. Anyone want to guess? What? In love is in there once. Yes, it is in there once. So it's not just this purpose. You know, God has several purposes often for the things that he does. So yes, in one, one verse four or end of verse four says, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as son through Jesus Christ, etc." You know, so yes, obviously love was a part of this. All right. There's one that's brought up three times in this passage. One's a little slightly different. Anybody see it? For the praise of his glory. All right? For the praise of his glory. Look at verse 6. It says, to the praise of his glorious grace. All right? 
to the praise of his glorious grace, his grace that he, we just talked about is lavishly given to us. It's so magnanimous that we can't even understand it. It does so much for us that we could never do on our own. It's only because of him. That's why he gives us these blessings so that we, like Paul in this passage, would turn around at the beginning of verse 3 and say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because he has done all these things for the praise of his glory. For the praise of his glorious grace. The other two times are strictly just for the praise or to the praise of his glory. Why did God do all these things? Because he's the only one that could. He is the only being who could do all these things. And in doing them, he proves that he's the only one that can do all these things. And in doing these things, he directs or should direct our attention to him. Our praise and our adoration and our honor to him. All these things he has done to glorify his own name. My question is, first of all, how often do we think about it? How often do we think about these things that God has blessed us with? Yes, all the material things, sure. Salvation, maybe we think about that. It's a little bit more kind of close to home in the way that we think about our Christian life. But do you really think about all these other things that Paul has brought up? Just in, just in his, his introduction to the book of Ephesians, he brings up all these blessings that we have because of Christ that God has given to us. How often have we thought about them? And then maybe the harder question, when's the last time you really praised God for them? When you come in here on Sunday morning and you sing the songs and you sing about the grace of God, is it just a song that you sing? Is it just something that we do a lot? Or is it because you are enamored with the grace of God? When you are alone, when's the last time you got on your knees, and not that this is the, the, the way to do it, but just raised your hands and, and praise God for all the blessings that he has given us spiritually. I encourage you, take this home. Take this home. Think about what God has done for us. Think about how he thought to do it before he even created the world. And he did it all through his son, Jesus Christ, so that we in turn would come back to him in praise and glory of his great name. Is that how you respond? I hope it is. If not, you should start practicing because that's what we're going to be doing in heaven. Read, chapter, read the book of Revelation. We're going to spend a lot of time praising a glorious and awesome God. Why not start now? Father, you have given to us so many things.
even the opportunity in prayer to say, Father, as adopted sons and daughters, I don't think we truly grasp what that means. You have given us all these blessings, forgiveness of sin, righteousness of Christ. You've given us hope. You've given us the Holy Spirit to encourage us, to seal us so that we know that the promise to come is sure. God, I pray if there's anyone that is here that maybe they don't, they don't know you. They don't know what it's like to be a child of God. I pray that you would touch their heart. I pray that you would open their eyes, that they would see everything that you offer. It's not just turning away from the things that we like that are sinful and, and obeying a, a harsh God. Lord, you are a gracious and loving and wonderful God who, who gives us blessing, blessings lavishly. And yet even as believers, we, we tend to not think about it. Lord, help us to be mindful of what you have done for us. Help us to be grateful for it and help us to praise you. As a local body, when we're together, help us to praise you in our small groups. As we meet, help us to praise you individually in our quiet time. As we look at what you've done for us, help it not to become something that we take for granted. Help us to constantly be in awe of who you are and what you have done so that we will give you the praise and the glory for everything. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.